It's June 26, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we'll be your geeks in residence for the next hour. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Evan Rapapor from Google to tell us about some new features with Google Maps. Finally, we'll talk to recent graduates from the first cohort of Blue Startups. We'll hear what these companies did and what's next on their journey. We, of course, love your questions and thoughts as part of the conversation. So be ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. Well, the increasing awareness and focus on asteroids and comets that could approach or even threaten Earth has brought a major milestone in astronomy. The Index of Near-Earth Objects, or NEOs, surpassed 10,000 entries this month with the help of a Hawaii observatory. The 1.8-meter Pan-Star-1 telescope located on the summit of Haleakala on Maui detected the 10,000th near-Earth object on June 18th, the Pan-STARRS project, with, which expects to see its second telescope come online next month, was established to focus on these potential space threats. Near-Earth objects are defined as asteroids and comets that approach the Earth's orbital distance to within about 28 million miles, and the index contains entries as small as a few feet to as large as 25 miles across. About 10% of the entries are over half a mile in size. But NASA, which has funded surveys that have identified more than 90% of NEOs, is quick to point out that none of these larger objects pose an Im- immediate impact threat. In fact, astronomers estimate that there are perhaps only a few dozen more large NEOs left to be discovered. Even so, the Pan-STARRS mission will continue to be relevant as undiscovered asteroids and comets consistently enter our, our solar system, and its capabilities will be significantly boosted when Pan-STARRS 2 comes online in July. Construction of the Pan-STARRS 2 uh, will cost about $2 million, according to the contractor Armstrong Pacific to build and will be completed in time, uh, on time and under budget. It will double the viewing light and allow astronomers to see fainter objects. Full operational capability should be reached early next year. Now, they did have a uh, cool kind of a video. Um, well, actually, it was an animation of a couple of shots of a object kind of moving across the uh, screen. And I guess, you know, they've got PanStars kind of locked in on certain areas of space, and they're just monitoring all these different movements. Right, and, uh, you know, it's it's something that, of course, astronomers have been focused on quite a bit. The first NEO was discovered in 1898, and uh, over the next century, maybe 500 more were discovered. But now we have uh, several being discovered at a time. PanSTARRS-2, based in uh, Hawaii, actually the the long-term plan is it to be a four-telescope uh, setup that would have uh, basically the equivalent of a 3.6-meter uh, l- uh, lens, but already they've had the success. They've had comets named after it, so very interesting stuff. PS2, by the way, uh, they retrofitted the old University of Tokyo's Magnum Observatory to put that in place. Mm. But uh, speaking of NEOs, in fact, there's more news on that front. Uh, the astronomy community is still buzzing, in fact, over the most recent flyby of an asteroid that came within 3.6 million miles of Earth. It's an approach that will be the closest we'll see for the next two centuries, or at least hopefully. Asteroid 1998 QE2, which is not named for the giant cruise ship, but of course is now being frequently described and compared to the luxury liner, was studied intensely as it passed us two weeks ago with key observations made by NASA's infrared telescope atop Mauna Kea. Astronomers were surprised to discover that asteroid QE2, which is 1.7 miles in diameter, was accompanied by a 2,500-foot-wide moon, and more interesting, it had a dark reddish coloring that hasn't been observed in any other asteroid. QE2 was primarily observed via radio radar from the 
um, our SIBO observatory in Puerto Rico and via infrared from Hawaii. The radar images return details of the asteroid's surface, while the observ- observations from Hawaii allowed an examination of its composition. Its coloring suggests that it is a primitive asteroid that hasn't been heated or melted as often as other asteroids and is thus has a makeup that is still relatively similar to its origins. QE2 was discovered in 1998, but it, in its 3.8-year solar orbit, only came close enough for radar observations this time around. The asteroid's moon was discovered at the end of May using NASA's Deep Space Network Antenna in California. In addition to the moon, researchers were able to catalog dark features that could be cavities or craters and also measured its rotation speed. Now, I remember uh, you know, seeing this story back in May, and uh, there, were, there was a lot of excitement because this was one of you know, the sort of close encounters. And because of the close distance that it was going to get, they could, you know, look at the uh, surface of the asteroid and, and really kind of determine some of the nature of that asteroid. But I can just imagine the excitement when they all saw this little moon orbiting this asteroid. Right. I, mean, that, I looked at that. I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. It only just recently discovered it to be a binary system. I guess the moon is about a quarter the size of the main asteroid. And of course, the name, it's just coincidental because of the sequence in which they're named and numbered. Mm-hmm. But because it was QE2, they're saying, okay, well, it's nine times the diameter. Nine QE2s would go across the diameter or 29 QE2 ships would go around the circumference. And in fact, I was just reading a blog by a guy who was talking about how he's been writing about this asteroid, and he made just this quick YouTube animation of the asteroid with QE2 liners going around it. And he says, I don't know what it means that this is my most viewed YouTube video. But, <laughs> you know, it certainly uh, captures the imagination. That well, way. and you know, the thing that also kind of surprised me was that they said that there, you know one in six asteroids that do get the... Um, detected have a moon cir- mm, mm. you know circling around or a little some you know little particle circling around it so i guess if you get worried about them coming near earth there's You're a couple of reasons two, yeah. right two oh go ahead well two professors at the UH school of ocean and earth science and technology have received competitive grants totaling over 4 million dollars to support their research of marine microbiology the study of microbi- microscopic organisms at the base of the ocean's food webs so as professors David Carl and Edward DeLong were among 16 scientists from 14 different institutions to receive up to $35 million over the next five years as part of a uh, national marine microbiology initiative. The initiative will focus on the trillions of microscopic organisms that are the smallest, most abundant, and critical forms of life in the ocean. The aim is to explore how they interact with each other and the environment and how they may be affected by ocean acidification and climate change. While they make up 90% of the bio biomass in the ocean and have been intensely studied for the last decade, initiative officials say that it is critical that we still fill in gaps in existing knowledge and challenge the way that we think about our oceans. Well, DeLong is the first scientist to be hired by the University of Hawaii's, uh, Hawaii under the auspices of the UH Innovation Initiative. Carl, meanwhile, has been with the UH since the, uh, 1978 and has been <clears throat> a professor of oceanography at SOAS since uh, 1987. Carl said in a statement, uh, these funds will support a team of students, postdocs, and technicians to continue our ongoing efforts to understand the complex nature of life in the ocean. Our research will be conducted at sea, where the marine microbes live. We can't wait to get started.
Well, I don't blame them. I mean, you know, this sounds pretty interesting. Now, I would imagine that, you know, there's been quite a bit of studies of these microbes, uh, you know, at the bottom of the ocean. But maybe this, there's a little different sort of spin on this study. Well, actually, we've been talking about it periodically. And it turns out that's, that this initiative was launched in 2004, so nearly a decade. And, you know, millions of dollars going to research of these things. Perhaps that's why we feel that we know more about them and we're learning more about them. But they are basically saying that the oceans are experiencing unprecedented stresses, uh, chemical changes temperature changes, and certainly if it's the foundation of the food web, we should certainly be concerned and oh, trying yeah, to learn absolutely. more about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if it's not the plankton that we're um, having to support the life in the ocean, I mean, it's the corals, and we've been reporting on a number of different stories that, that both are being affected. Right, so Carl is going to be focusing on phosphorus cycles and linkages with the carbon cycle, but De Leong, interestingly, his project is using robotic sampling techniques. So uh, we'll certainly keep an oh. eye out to see if uh, we can learn more about that. Hawaii Oceanic Technology, an aquaculture company, has received another international patent for its ocean sphere technology. The company last week announced that it has received a Canadian patent for its automated positioning and submersible open ocean cages. The technology has already been successfully patented in the U.S. and the Philippines and has applications pending in Japan, Australia, and the European Union. These patents will allow the company to capitalize on its production of sustainable yellowfin tuna as well as selling and licensing ocean spheres around the world. Well, each ocean sphere is uh, specifically designed 82,000 cubic foot cage that sits submerged in the deep ocean waters and uses GPS systems and onboard thrusters to maintain its position and depth automatically. By raising yellowfin tuna in open ocean cages, Hawaii Ocean um, Oceanic Technologies touts the unlimited availability of fresh ocean water and the quick disbursement of fish waste. The company has a 247-acre lease site, 2.6 miles off the North Kohala coast on the uh, Big Island where it can operate up to 12 ocean spheres. At full capacity, the demonstration site would be able to produce 6,000 tons of tuna branded as King Ahi every year. The company says that to produce the same amount of fish using conventional land-based aquaculture farms would require 21,000 acres of land and, of course, massive amounts of water. Spencer said in a statement, Our goal is to demonstrate that you can move some types of fish farming out into deep water where larger farms can be constructed and environmental impact can be insignificant due to naturally occurring processes. Now, we've had uh, Bill Spencer on the show uh, Mm -hmm. a bunch of times. In fact, you know, we've been around, the show's been around for about five years and we've been sort of following... uh, 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 these ocean spheres and, and hoping that uh, we could see them actually get deployed at some point in time. And, and uh, I was talking to Bill today, and he said that it's been probably seven years since he started this project. Mm-hmm. And what's holding it up right now is uh, just getting some approvals from the uh, Army Corps of Engineers. Right. In fact, uh, he's gotten uh, at least a couple of extensions from the Board of Land and Natural Resources. Uh, it is, to some in some communities, a con- controversial project. They're saying that, you know, it could pollute the water, even though there's there's a lot of it. If it's out there and it's concentrated offshore, it could, in fact, have impact on the tourism industry. Um, but uh, he did get another extension uh, in May to move the construction date as far as October of 2015. But like you said, that seven years for the Corps of Engineers approval, there's no way of telling how much longer that process is going to take. Well, you know, he's been waiting seven years, but I think the, the approval has been probably just more recent. Uh, he just It's just not clear when they're going to uh, make that approval or pass that approval. Now, the thing with uh, the ocean spheres is that it's a technology that can help pro- provide fish 
uh, that's uh, grown on in the ocean and supply fish for you know the the population that's now basically harvesting out of the ocean. Right. I mean, his primary focus, if you ever hear him speak, is the basic demand is going mm-hmm. to way Increase. overwhelm right. the actual natural supply. So he sees this as an important mission for sure. Yeah, so we'll keep track of that. Finally, a couple of quick stories we wanted to share with you. The Hawaii State Public Library System received a $1.17 million grant from the Institute for Museum and Library Services to improve and expand technology services for the library. The funds will go towards statewide library purchases, including infrastructure and network improvements, annual subscriptions to online databases, and some ebook and e-music costs. And as we continue our conversation about accelerator programs, we should let you know that the Energy Accelerator is expected to launch uh, its second round next month with applications opening beginning August 1st. The Accelerator is a program of the Pacific International Center for High Technology Research, or PICTOR, and it's aimed at fostering innovative clean energy companies in Hawaii. The first round did have eight participating companies. Half of them were from the mainland. This second round will incorporate corporate sponsorships. And now joining us here in the studio is a very special guest, Evan Rappaport from Google, and he's here to tell us about some cool things happening with Google Maps. Welcome to the show, Evan. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Good. And uh, Evan, so tell me, I mean, kind of what's bringing you here to Hawaii, first off? Uh, well, we have a very exciting announcement tomorrow, and you'll just have to stay tuned to see what that's all about. Okay, so we won't ask you any about that stuff, but we we will ask you about stuff of, um, happening with Google Maps. I mean, I think uh, everybody who's listening to the show is familiar with Google Maps and, and uh, probably a, a very um, frequent user. I know I am. Uh, what's kind of new happening with Google Maps? So I think it's been a really exciting year for us on the Google Maps team. Uh, Google Maps has always been sort of the most accurate and comprehensive map, and I think in the fall we really surprised everyone when it all also became the most beautiful map. And we released this iOS app that has just been tremendously successful and people really love it. And then in May uh, at the Google I.O. Um, developers conference, we announced a new Google Maps for web. And uh, it's it's just really, I think, the most beautiful map I've mm-hmm. ever seen. You could browse the world. You could zoom out and see real-time cloud cover over the map and then go all the way out and see uh, you know the stars in the universe all perfectly accurate. And then you could zoom all the way back down into Hawaii and see Street View and see images and go underwater and, and all sorts of amazing things. Well, you know, uh, Google Maps is one of my favorite uh, utilities, and it's indispensable in a number of ways. I like, though, that there's kind of a focus on not just what is utilitarian, like it's great that you can find where you're going or get a street view of a building, but there is some whimsy and there is some certain, you know, certainly an emphasis on educational value uh, uh, that you can go walking around inside buildings, for example. And sure, maybe you might be able to walk around a Best Buy or something like that, but there's been... um, a great expansion, I think, in your programs that let you go into museums and zoos, and some of them are in Hawaii. Yeah, we've um, always thought you know, that we wanted to have indoor locations. We have tons of restaurants through our Google Business Photos. We have our Google Art Project where you can explore many museums uh, throughout the world. And uh, you mentioned whimsy before, so I, I hope people have seen some of our April Fool's Day jokes in the past <laughs> on Google Maps. Uh, we turned the whole world into 8-bit, and uh, we spent a lot of time really trying to make sure it was a perfect recreation of, of, of 8-bit maps and Street View. Um, so it's a really fun, definitely whimsy thing, but we always, of course, focus on, on accuracy with it, too. Actually, I, I remember that. You did one with ASCII art, and I went around Oahu, and I took like the H3 tunnels and Ilani Palace, all of these pictures done in ASCII art. So those certainly have an impact. Well, you know, a couple of years ago, um, I know the uh, the Google trike was uh, kind of going around campuses. I know they were on the UH campus and, and Kapiolani Community College. 
uh, I've never seen uh, the Trekker, Google Trekker. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the Trekker. Yeah, the Trekker is our newest platform for Street View, and it's a really exciting technology because we took everything that the Street View car has and condensed it down into a 40-pound backpack. So you can go off the road, go anywhere through rugged terrain, and uh, basically create street view on trails and in wonderful places. So we've been to the Galapagos Islands recently. Uh, We trekked all the way down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back up, and uh, just a number of places around the world. So I think you could start to expect to see a lot of amazing places starting to show up on Google Maps where our cars can never drive. Well, you drive. know, the, the Google trike, I can, I can see where, from a, from a motion standpoint, you are fairly consistently, you know, driving through a particular area. But when you're on a trekker, I mean, the guy is walking and he's probably bouncing up and down. How do you, is there some algorithm that sort of smooths that out? We have lots of algorithms that smooth that <laughs> out. <laughs> that, uh, that actually <laughs> that's turns that's out That's a secret to, sauce, right? <laughs> the, the fact that we have algorithms is definitely not a secret sauce. We have some of, um, I think, some of the most sophisticated technology to actually make sure that our imagery is uh, what we call posed correctly in the world, that it's oriented so that as you go panorama to panorama, it feels like a nice consistent experience as you're moving through space and doesn't start to rotate or tilt. And um, the Trekker is certainly the most challenging for Mm -hmm. all of that because Mm -hmm. of, as you mentioned, people are tilting and you don't want them to, you know, tilt over sideways when you're you're exploring virtually. So yeah, it's it's a really interesting challenge. We have multiple GPS units on it. We have all sorts of sensor fusion happening to make sure that we keep it accurate. Now, what? can I ask you a, a kind of a more nerdy question? I love I mean, nerdy you questions. Have, you have Google Maps, which which is fairly well deployed on all platforms, and then you have Google Earth, which is a slightly different product, and it's a different rendering or way of approaching uh, the Earth, and you can do Google Earth on in similar. You can do Google Earth in space, Google Earth on the moon, things like that. Uh, what is the interface between those two? Are we Are they converging in some way? Or will they always kind of serve different purposes? So I think in May, when we announced the new Google Maps, which you haven't seen yet, you should definitely uh, sign up. It's invite only right now, but we're rolling out lots of invites. You'll start to see sort of the first experiences of Google Earth in Google Maps. As I mentioned before, you can now zoom out of the map and start seeing the curvature of the Earth and seeing the sun rise over the over the Earth. You'll see the real-time clouds in the sun. And I think it's really starting to give you that fun exploration ability that Google Earth provides right there in Google Maps on the web. Now, you said the uh, this is available via invite. Where where would you go? I mean, would you go someplace specific, a specific website to go get the invite? Yeah, if you follow our Google Lat Long blog, which mm-hmm, is uh, mm-hmm. which we update pretty regularly, there'll be some instructions there, um, as well as on the actual just the Google Maps product at maps.google.com. You'll you'll see um, some some sign up form there too. Now, some of the underwater imagery that you created, I mean, where was that uh, source from? I mean, there's, is there an underwater version of the uh, Google <laughs> trike? <laughs> <laughs> so for all of our underwater street view imagery, which we uh, announced last year, is a partnership with the Catlin Sea View Survey team. And so they're a wonderful organization that's mission is to bring the oceans to the entire world and to help uh, call attention to some of the things you guys mentioned earlier about uh, the coral reefs and some of the threats facing the oceans and to just bring the ocean to life. And so uh, we partnered with them to bring some of their imagery onto Google Maps. And we have uh, Hanama Bay and Molokini here in Hawaii, and then over down in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and some places around the Philippines. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. uh, they're just a wonderful organization. They created their own technology, and we've been licensing the imagery with them. Mm, cool. Now, um, Tech News has been abuzz recently with an acquisition of an app, a company called Waze, which was more kind of a social and other people, and regular people contributing to map information and stuff. But I, from what I know, there are opportunities 
opportunities for regular people to also contribute to the accuracy of Google Maps, correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, so we have a product called MapMaker, and that's a really fun project that you could uh, a product that you could go into if you can uh, apply your local knowledge to make your map more accurate. Uh, if you know that a street is a one way street, or if it's named wrong, or if you see that there's a a lake that isn't being called out as a lake, you can draw a lake. Actually, I, I uh, take some pride in the fact that I drew drew in one of the uh, Northwest Hawaiian Islands that wasn't listed there, so I had a lot of fun sort of tracing the perimeter of the island using the satellite mm-hmm. mode. And uh, we I've occasionally host these map-ups uh, around the world where um, communities come together who are really passionate about making an accurate and comprehensive map available to everyone. And, uh, you know, if people here in Hawaii would be thrilled about that, we could definitely, you know, try to try to make Hawaii have a, a better map. Sounds if, good. That I, Sounds like I another project that we can work on. I, I, I mean, just I like to focus on the map around my house. And, like, sometimes there's a Starbucks on the corner that's unfortunately not really there. So that sounds like a fantastic project. <laughs> now, uh, you know, I've been following your uh, some of your blog posts and some of your uh, posts on uh, Google Plus, and you've always, you're, always, you're always featuring these uh, photosphere uh, photos. And I'm thinking, when's that going to be available on the iOS uh, platform? So we announced Photosphere in the fall as part of Android 4.2, which is Jelly Bean. And Photosphere is a really cool technology that lets you create essentially Street View with your phone. It was mm-hmm, a partnership mm-hmm. that uh, my team did with the Android team, and we were able to create, um, I think, just some of the most beautiful Photospheres that I've seen. We made it an open source uh, technology in terms of the the metadata that goes into the JPEG. So anyone who creates panoramas um, using desktop software or any other application uh, can create Photospheres as well and add those to Google Maps. And so you can um, essentially create your own Street View, putting it right there on Google Maps mm-hmm. uh, using Photosphere. So that's that's one of of the products that you have under your sort of management umbrella. Yeah, I mean, so me personally, I'm really, really passionate about photography. I always have been, and I've always loved maps ever since I was a little kid, and I used to to put photos on maps and build my own websites, and, you know, now doing this at Google, mm-hmm. working on the Street View team and working with uh, Panoramio. I also am the, uh, working on that community and, and now Photosphere. Um, it's really just a dream for me to be able to bring more and more photos onto maps and make maps just tremendously beautiful. And I think you can browse Google Maps and see photos of the world that you might not have ever seen anywhere else. Well, well I guess the answer is no. Right? Well, some, you, never know. you never know. Well, Evan, it, it's always great to have you here. And again, you've got a big announcement coming tomorrow. We'll certainly be watching for that. I would certainly say to see your view of what you do. And of course, your love of Hawaii following you on Google Plus makes sense. Evan Rappaport there. But uh, where else can people go to learn more about what's up with Google Maps? So uh, our Google Latlong blog is a great place to follow uh, everything that's going on in Google Maps. We have lots of really exciting news there. Uh, you'll certainly see what we're announcing tomorrow, uh, mm-hmm. shining up there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And we also have some great social media channels on Twitter and Google Plus where you can follow what's going on. Sounds Fantastic. good. And we'll definitely put that up on our show notes. Thank you very much, guys. So thanks, Evan, for joining us. All right. Aloha. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Samantha Godfrey and Dave Kazuki to, co- to talk about their three-month intensive with Blue Startups. What were the key lessons learned from this three-month engagement and how will it help in the next phase of their companies? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. So please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, you can also tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii, this is Bite Marks Cafe. The Island Oasis Ensemble presents Belly Dancing in HBR's Atherton Studio on Saturday, June 29th at 7.30. The exotic evening will feature belly dancers Masayo and Kalai, accompanied by live music, and will introduce you to Belly Dancing's Cutting Edge, the new style of tribal fusion which combines traditional dance styles with hip-hop, breakdance, and other new moves. A full band will back up the dancers for a rollicking evening. 
Reservations, call 955-8821 during business hours. Connie Kapila Sunday is my favorite program because it allows you to discover so much Hawaiian music. There's such great Hawaiian music coming out, and to be able to find out about the artists, listen to the songs, listen to a variety of music, is one of the most satisfying ways to spend a Sunday afternoon. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Samantha Godfrey and Dave Kazuki. Uh, Samantha is the CEO and co-founder of Farmly and president of United Drug Supply, Inc., with over 10 years of experience in the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical distribution industry. Dave Kazuki, meanwhile, is a serial entrepreneur, creator, and CEO of PeopleBridge, a social media platform, also co-founder here of ToeChoice. And what was it that drew them to Blue Startups now that they're graduates of uh, the Accelerator? We want to uh, uh, welcome them. And, of course, we'd love your comments and questions. So the number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689. From the neighbor islands, Samantha and Davey want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Hey, thanks for having us. Well, we'll start with uh, giving you both an opportunity to tell us a little bit about what your respective companies do, Samantha. We, maybe we can uh, have you start off and tell us a little bit about what, what Farmly does. Sure. Well, Farmly is a first of its kind pharmaceutical bidding marketplace that allows medical facilities nationwide to source products that they can't get from their primary channels from a, a number of um, smaller wholesalers throughout the entire country. So essentially, you may have... Queens Medical Center, for example, like located here in Hawaii, who may need 100 vials of flu vaccine. And they have an upcoming clinic and they need to source it. They need to source the right price. They want to maybe expand their reach of people that they purchase from. They can simply put in a bid request in our system. It then gets sent out to Farmley's vetted licensed vendors. And at that point, all of the vendors are able to submit an offer back to the purchaser. And the purchaser is simply able to see you know, what price they have the product at, when they're able to get delivery, whether or not they're veteran-owned small business, women-owned small business, any type of like deferentials that they're, they're seeking. And they simply accept the, the bid and we match up the vendor to the customer and we take a small transaction fee from the vendor for facilitating that transaction. Now, mm-hmm. Samantha, your background, I guess, is in pharmaceutical or the healthcare industry. And I'm kind of curious, I mean, I wasn't even aware that maybe this inventory supply management was as big of a challenge as it is, or is it? Is it, you know, how frequently does a hospital run out of a specific drug, and how much faster is Farmly going to help than perhaps just placing another order with the drug company? Absolutely. So I've been selling, I I tell people, they ask me what I do, and I'm like, I sell drugs, and then they laugh at me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But essentially, I do. I'm I'm a drug middleman, and um, I've been selling pharmaceuticals for the past 10 years. And it almost, when I first started in the industry, it's almost like a commodity market. And I was like, this cannot be legal. Like, I mean, here we are trying to resell, resell product and there's really no cap on pricing. There's no really system for these purchasers to purchase product when they have a need and they have patients in their facilities that need to have a surgery, for example. And, and so the issue is, is, is that the wholesalers, they, they're, they're these smaller wholesalers. I'm not talking the big three, but the smaller wholesalers make up a $3 billion market. It's a huge market. The, the pharmaceutical industry as a whole is a $300 billion market, but $3 billion isn't too shabby. And that's the niche that we're focusing on initially because that's the area that, that I'm most familiar with for the past 10 years. And every single day, 
89% of medical facilities have one or more drugs that they can't source from their primary channel. And unfortunately, most of these drugs fall into oncology, chemotherapy um, mm. area or anesthesia area. I mean, these. this is not like, oh, you, you need your multivitamin for the day. This is like you need to get your, your chemotherapy treatment so you can live. And so we do take it very seriously. And the purchasers that I've dealt with um, for years now, they're they're bombarded with sales calls from people. They spend typically twenty five percent of their time trying to like ward off sales reps and their phone calls, and like they're getting told that you know you know so and so vendor has propofol, for example, and it's an anesthesia medication, and but they don't know who the wholesaler is, whether or not they're licensed, um, whether or not they can trust that they'll get that product on time. So they they don't give them the time of day, um, or they they buy from whoever's calling them at the right time, and they're not getting the fairest price possible for their facility or for that patient ultimately when those those prices get passed along. So the the formerly system is essentially going to save them time and money, but also create a competitive bidding platform to ensure and bring all these wholesalers and vendors together so they actually get more customers. Like they're not just this trying to make their one or two sales per day because that's all they can reach on the phone. Right, right. It's like eBay of pharmaceuticals. Like, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit more about how you know this opportunity arose because I would think that somebody would have kind of built this clearinghouse already. But I, I want to give David a chance okay. to tell us a little bit about uh, what Toll Choice is all about. Okay, so Toll Choice is the fastest way to receive roadside assistance. So if you're stuck on the side of the road and you don't have AAA or insurance coverage, then you whip out our HTML5 web app. It locates the, the closest trucks around you. Um, they bid on your situation. You get to choose. You pay up front. And then they, they arrive quickly. So it's a very quick way to get roadside assistance. So when you say they, they sort of uh, um, bid, so you're stuck on a road, you've got to get a tow truck. How quickly do you think that turnaround bidding process might be? Well, we, we time it. And so on average, it's about two, three minutes. Hmm. But you get a selection of all the trucks that are nearby. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is people want fast, but they also want cheap, right? So they end up calling maybe three to five different tow truck companies. With our, with our um, app, they can see five bids right there, and they can also see who's closest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I, having perhaps the tendency of never really owning a new car, uh, I have a lot of experiences with, <laughs> uh, say, incidents on the side of the road, and it is sort of a matter of who's nearby, who's going to be able to help me, who's going to insist on cash, I mean, all sorts of things. And even in the news recently uh, with exclusive contracts for certain lots and, you know, perhaps not the most forthright business practices regarding tow companies, I can see a lot of uh, opportunities there to to democratize, democratize it, to make to put more information out there. But I, I do believe, you know, tow, towing companies are fairly lucrative. Uh, how What's the incentive for them to be a participator in this network? So, you know, we have two sets of customers. We have the stranded motorist, right, and we talked about what they want. The tow companies, basically, they want more tolls. That's it. I mean, they, any idle truck that's wasted inventory, they'll never get back. So we're bringing them more tolls, basically. Because it's more real-time, I would imagine, than, say, a Yellow Pages ad. Right. They, they used to survive when the Yellow Pages, it's not happening anymore. So, so if you are, uh, let's say, stranded on the side of the road and then you have this app available, uh, there's probably some geolocation that will indicate where you are, and then that correlates to maybe the tow companies that are participating in your program and, and, and show you where the closest tow trucks are? Exactly. So with smartphones penetrating, you know, more than 50% of the market today, 
Um, that's that's the main way we want to get their location. But also you can call in and just give your location to our call center, mm-hmm. and they'll punch it into the same platform. The bidding happens the same way, um, and you still get a choice. Great. Now we're talking to uh, Dave Kazuki from Toll Choice and Samantha Godfrey from Farmly, and they are both recent graduates of the uh, Blue Startups Accelerator cohort that uh, just kind of uh, ended their, their three-month uh, intensive engagement. And uh, we're talking about their companies and some of the things that they might have learned as a result of going through the uh, the startup process. Uh, so if you have a c- question or comment, uh, feel free to give us a call. The number here is 941-3689. Or from the neighbor islands, you can call us at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. And you know, um, uh, Samantha, I wanted to get back to you about the uh, question. You know, I, I think in this sort of, you know, you said it was like a three hundred billion dollar business, and even the segment that you're addressing is a three billion dollar segment. And and uh, you know, to and this technology's been around for a little while. Uh, why is it that only now? You came up with this great idea, <laughs> and I wish I came up with it ten years ago. Um, <laughs> well, at least you're—I'm—I'm I'm assuming that you're still the first, right? Um, well, I mean, obviously, I, I'm not going to say that there are competitors out there. Alibaba is the largest B two B marketplace. They do sell pharmaceuticals, but they're not a trusted site. They're based in China. You know, the amount of counterfeit product coming through there is like vast. Um, and there are a, a few smaller competitors that have been around. But the key thing is for us to for have built in three months with, with Blue Startups is my team is like very talented. And besides myself, my co-founder, Cubs Law Chandani, um, is an attorney based out of Miami, Florida. He specializes in pharmaceutical compliance law. Um, and my CTO, Anup Marwadi, based out of San Diego, he's been in software development for 15 years and has created, uh, and has created medical um, sites before. Um, mm-hmm. Similar to this, but not exactly like this. And so our our expertise brought together has allowed this to come together so well. And I think part of the great thing about, um, you know, Blue Startups was that enabled us to leave our busy lives back on the mainland to like come here, group, you know, the time difference actually helped us because like, you know, there's we're not dealing with anyone else on the West Coast or East Coast back on the mainland after a certain point in time. So we're able to focus on building a product um, much more efficiently, mm-hmm. and also we're in each other's face, giving feedback constantly, which was was helpful. And I mean, it's in paradise, so that of course was a factor <laughs> in us coming to. No, you, you brought something up that uh, <laughs> I wanted to, to wanted to uh, have you guys give me a little bit of feedback <laughs> on is now Farmly is actually a company on the mainland that came to Hawaii to participate in Blue Startups, and and of right. course Dave Kazuki, uh, uh, you're 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 a longtime serial entrepreneur here in Hawaii. So there's you know there's uh, Toe Choice, kind of born and bred in Hawaii. Maybe, um, Samantha, tell us a little, little bit about what kind of attracted you to come to Hawaii when, you know, there's all this activity going on on the mainland anyway. Well, in addition to the paradise part. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in addition to the paradise part. I mean, I live in Southern California. I'm used to somewhat paradise, but, I mean, nothing's quite like paradise like Hawaii. Um, and, I mean, on top of that, when we found out about the Blue Startups program earlier this year, um, about a couple months before the program started, um, we had considered applying to other accelerator programs such as 500 Startups, uh, Y Combinator, um, Techstars. Um, but it came down to us that we needed, we wanted to kind of be one of the first. And, mm-hmm. you know, on my team, you know, and including myself, we're very competitive. And to be part of like in building one of the first you know, and help like mold kind of like the program as it went along. Cause obviously boost startups is a startup itself. So we kind of like build and grow together. Right, right. Um, and we kind of feed off of each other that way. And, um, we found out about the mentor network, the people that were involved with the program. And, um, there are, I mean, I think w- the number one most positive thing that all the teams will tell you is that the mentor network here and the community are so very helpful. 
um, our mentor was um, Tina Fitch out of Maui, and she was extremely helpful in helping us build our products. Steve Markowitz, you know, Dan Friedman. Um, and it, it's just been the community community as a whole like really pulls together to help give us the feedback. And I met with people at Queens Medical Center, I met with Senator Wakai, and just everyone is just so positive about helping bring tech companies to Hawaii um, and helping people know that you know they can actually get work done here too and still go to the beach later. Um, and so I think that that's mo- that's really important for companies to understand that they can still that they can still live and work in paradise. Mm-hmm. And Dave, um, so as someone who's been here for some time and of course has seen the uh, tech industry ebb and flow and now with all of these accelerated activities what attracted you to this specific program well you know you guys you guys got a front front seat view of how we've been evolving over the years and at times it's been a struggle but when we saw this evolving we knew it was going to be something special and you know Samantha mentioned okay first class um, our timing just so happened to be that we started Toe Choice we started it prior to hearing about Blue Startups and the timing was just right. So when we mm. saw it coming together, we said, okay, we know we got to get into this. And uh, how did your experience uh, echo hers in terms of did you make – because you've, you've had a lot of connections. You know a lot of people as well. But were these mentors really a cut above? And was this network that much stronger to help you build this new business? Well, you know, we looked at the mentor list, and I have either personal connections or access to pretty much everyone on the list. But um, being there, they all come to you. So we could have made appointments with people and spent weeks trying to get in front of people, but they all came in. They were anxious to help out. The access was incredible. Um, and then it was extended beyond just the lead mentors. So it was very, very efficient from that standpoint. So how would you sort of describe uh, a typical day uh, at the Accelerator? Now, this is kind of a three-month program, correct? Mm-hmm. So every day you're at the Blue Startups. They have offices in the downtown Honolulu. Uh, what would that uh, day be like? Besides playing Tetris? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and looking out the windows and looking at the ocean. And Well, on average, um, I think Sam and I were, on average, the earliest ones in. Yeah, we definitely were. Techies usually do not get into the office. <laughs> and then I think on a daily basis, just about, we had some sort of mentoring or coaching session uh, up to three. So what it felt like to me was you get in and most of the day is taken up by coaching and mentoring. Um all, like I'd say 90% of it, very, very valuable for us. And then we'd stay till like 9, 10, 11, 12 at night getting kind of the day work done. Wow. That's, that's for pretty me. intense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is It is intense. And I know I know Dave and Robert, they're a two-person team. I was lucky even with, we have a three-person team. And even I felt with three people, I still felt like we had so much to do for the day. So I don't know how Dave and Rob got all the work done. <laughs> they must have been up very, very late. But um, it's, it's, it's kind of cool to be around other people who are, you know, entrepreneurial with like a different concept than you and kind of getting their ideas for how they're building their product, like what they're considering with marketing. And I think that, you know, the mentor, yes, the mentor network is great. All the classes that we had um, during the week in regards to pitch practice, you know, the feedback we would get from that on how to pitch to certain investors, you know, how to do a business model, you know, how to do social media marketing, all these things were great. But I think what, what, one of my favorite things was actually just being in the office around the other teams and like asking their opinion on on what we're building also and getting that feedback. Um, and I think that's very, very important to have like a cohesiveness amongst the teams because we're all there for the right reasons. It's like that kind of positive energy, I think, like kind of permeates on everyone else. And, and, and all, all top notch people. I mean, yeah. every single one of these um, of our cohort teammates um, are going to do well. If not in this endeavor, whatever it is they're on, um, they're going to do well. Mm hmm. 
Because some do feel. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> it I, happens. And I gather yeah, the sense that when you were the early birds, you you both had a lot of opportunities to bounce ideas off each other. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we had, you know, just like with Dave, we had been um, had this idea for um, since last November, and it came down to timing. So we were building it on our own, and then the accelerator came up, and I was like, you know what? I can't do this part-time. I need to be able to put 100% of my efforts into building this to actually get it done. Um, and it came down to my... Um, uh, one of my, my a new my CTO he has a, a five six month old baby girl and just married and we left it up to him whether or not we were coming to Hawaii because I didn't want his wife being mad at me so uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he said yes we came <laughs> oh great now I I do want to talk to you a little bit about uh, you know having gone through this process three month period now you've already graduated and sort of what some of the next steps might be so we want to hold that thought we'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Samantha Godfrey and Dave Kuzuki about the lessons learned from their three month accelerator intensive what are some of the things that they went through what was the pitch practice like what are the next phases and milestones after Blue Startups if you've got a question we want to hear from you as well 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands 877-941-3689 also listening on Twitter this is Bite Marks Cafe do you ever have those little voices in your head? That little guy whispering, I don't know if you can do this. Is what they say about us true? They don't think you can do it. Whose voices are they? That's not me. That's not myself. Do they hurt us or help us? They're kind of guiding voices. He would remind her to do more positive things. Can they save our lives? Porky, are you there? Dad said, I can hear you. I can hear you. I can hear you. Inner Voices on the next Radio Lab. Saturday morning at 10, following The Splendid Table. Tune into Full Nelson this Sunday night when I'll continue a month-long salute to Harry Smith, father of the American Anthology of Folk Music. We'll feature songs for lovers and hear from Jeff Sane, member of the Buzzard Holler Boys, who make folk music inspired by anthology artists. That's Full Nelson this Sunday night at 10 here on HPR2. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Samantha Godfrey and Dave Kozuki about launching their new startups. And, of course, what are the key ingredients needed to create a successful company? And, of course, do we have the right stuff here? Now, obviously, according to Samantha and Dave, we do. And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And uh, right before the break, we were talking about uh, maybe some of the best practices that you might uh, see having learned from the uh, three-month in- intensive and what you might take on, I guess, after now that you've graduated. Samantha, what's, uh, what's on the, on the uh, drawing table, I guess, for the next uh, phase of your company? Um, well, next phase is definitely fundraising. And I think we kind of, it kind of, in our capstone week in San Francisco, it kind of actually sunk in wow, I need to raise the money to continue development, to hire people, to build a product. And it is, you know, I, I thought initially the three-month program was was the hardest part, was actually building it. No, the hardest part comes afterwards. When you're on your own, you've got to kick your own butt. You don't have a set schedule. You got to get with your co-founder um, and your CTO um, to try and raise funds, you know, talk to angel networks, talk to, you know, seed investors. And it is a full-time job. Um 
and definitely not one to take lightly. So I think that, you know, my advice to anybody coming on board is, is to make sure, A, you have your, your, your team together. You know, the team is, I think, is the most important uh, for you to have all the crucial elements to be able to build what you're building, whether it's, you know, a software developer with an idea person or in, in our respects, it was um, also having pharmaceutical compliance, you know, attorney involved because of the nature of our business. And, um, and then also having the time to invest in it. Um, it, it's a very big step to be able to, to, to come on board to a program and really intensively get involved um, if you have other commitments going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dave, uh, what are, what's uh, some of your big takeaways? Yeah, so you know, we, we were fortunate um, when we got into the program, people actually asked to invest in us. So we, we got about 90K invested um, before we graduated. Um, during the demo days, we picked up three more verbal commitments. So we're doing pretty good. We'd like to raise... Um, a lot more than what we got committed, but it does take full time um, to go ahead and fundraise. So we're actually making a conscious effort to just close down on the, the commitments we had, um, take any opportunities to present, but really work on the product. Mm-hmm. Because we launched the product right, right as we went to a, a tow show in Vegas and then the demo day and then the other demo day. And really, there, it's a little rougher on the edges. We want to get that going and bring the revenue in. With the revenue, we have some independence, as well as more ammunition to go fundraise. So we're really focusing on the product right now. So as Samantha said, I mean, you have to really kind of focus. And, and I know, Dave, you've been kind of involved with a number of different projects. Is it now really your focus is on Toe Choice? And that's where the... Uh, yeah, that's my, that's my full-time gig. Um, I'm still helping out teaching social media um, across the country, the NDPTC, but really Toe Choice is the, the main focus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, we want to welcome uh, Bill Spencer, who is uh, on the line. And, and, and I understand Bill has been involved with, uh, with the Blue Startups as uh, one of the mentors. And one of the things that uh, I was kind of curious about is, you, Samantha, you talked about uh, follow-on funding. And, and you know one of the challenges that I think Hawaii has always faced is that we may have the ability to do some uh, whether it's startup funding or accelerator funding or maybe e- even an angel round. But once you start to get into that phase of getting um, VC capital sort of invested into your company, that's where it sort of falls off. And I wanted to uh, give Bill a chance to talk a little bit about what you, know, what you see, Bill, the sort of the landscape of uh, that, that sort of venture round. Well, thanks, Bert. Hi, guys. Glad to Aloha. hear you on the Hi, Bill. Cafe. Um, well, Bert, first let me just say that you know, we had eight very, very good entrepreneurial teams, mm-hmm. and they all really demonstrated that we, we do live in a startup paradise. But it was no cakewalk, let me tell you. Um, we pushed these guys very hard. Uh, they worked very hard. Uh, they got essentially $100,000 in services from all parts of our entrepreneurial ecosystem in Hawaii, lawyers, uh, finance experts, entrepreneurs who've already been there and done that and been successful. They got on advice on, you know, how to uh, take on investment, how to structure their companies. Um, and it was a really tough schedule. I mean, there was something, you know, all the time going on. And and uh, I'd say one of the most important things was, you know, weekly uh, pitch perfection uh, efforts where where every team had to perfect their pitch, had the pitch in front of a bunch of real tough critics, and, uh, you know, I think they all all benefited. They were great learners, and uh, so, you know, the, the key now, of course, is we want these guys to succeed. Uh, we've really um, shown that you can take some entrepreneurs who otherwise might not have been able to focus because of their other commitments, 
We put them in an incubator uh, where we pushed them to focus, 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 even though there are plenty of distractions in Hawaii. And we got them through in three months from, you know, virtually in some cases just an idea to a real business. And what I'm uh, hoping now is that uh, the folks that have the wherewithal to invest in companies that are at this early stage will start writing checks. Now, we're going to, of course, get them in front of Hawaii Angels, where we have about 100 or so qualified investors who can write some checks. Some of them have already been successful in doing that. But the real challenge, Bert, as you alluded to in your initial question, is, you know, where's the beef? Where's the next stage of venture capital going to come from? And as you know, I'm a real proponent of getting our high net worth individuals and institutions to invest in our own backyard. Hmm. And I think with Blue Startups, what we've shown is we've got great people, people who will move from, you know, California or elsewhere to be part of our entrepreneurial scene because it's just so cool and and so effective. So, you know, the fact is, is we've, you know, we've got to invest in these guys and make sure they stay here and succeed and show um, even more entrepreneurs that it can be done in Hawaii. I believe it can. Now, Bill, can I ask you, uh, as a mentor, as somebody that's sharing wisdom and guidance and helping shape this uh, next generation of local entrepreneurs, uh, certainly I can imagine it's rewarding. Uh, what did you get from this first experience? I mean, do you look forward to more? I mean, what was uh, uh, was it just a warm, fuzzy feeling, or you know, was it uh, more rewarding to you in other ways? Well, as you know, I've, I've spent the better part of the last 15 years at the Hawaii Venture Capital Association helping entrepreneurs. That's what I love to do. But I think this program really took it up a notch. It was very focused, very well organized. Uh, Shenoa Farnsworth, who leads the program, is just top-notch and, and really put um, a great program together. Uh, so I what I really got out of it was um, the opportunity to, you know, to see somebody really grow and get from A to Z uh, in a very efficient way. I mean, I help entrepreneurs all the time, you know, give them advice here and there, but um, I don't always get to see what happens on the back end. And in this case, you know, in three months, which is a soundingly short period, I saw some just tremendous growth and uh, development. And that really was rewarding to me, and now I want to see these guys hit some home runs. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask uh, um, Samantha, you know, in terms of uh, trying to take it to the next phase, and maybe Bill, if you have anything to, to chime in on, uh, you know, if, if looking for money is part of the next sort of phase of your activity, are you going to be looking for it here, or are you going to be looking for it on the mainland, or how is that going to work out for you? Well, I, I will look for it wherever I can find it. <laughs> um, ideally, you know, I would love to get invested from people in Hawaii. Um, but because I'm based in San Diego, um, I'm also utilizing my connections in California as well. Um, and so we are kind of looking for, um, you know, we were going between, you know, trying to find smart money. And what I mean by smart money is is people can, who help build your company as well and um, provide kind of guidance as to the B2B marketplace that we're building and or with a medical healthcare background. Um, so yeah, it's, we will find it in niches, like depending on them on the market in the industry that the industry sector that, that some investors, angels, um, are, are focused on, but we're, we're open to, 
Mm-hmm. Is there um, is there any? Uh, I mean, since you've been here three months, you've gone through the sort of intensive, uh, but. Uh, the plan is not to really kind of relocate your company here, right? I mean, it makes m- more sense to be where you are. Currently. You know, and I've told uh, I, I've told a few people this, especially after we we got a lot of press from uh, winning Startup World in Maui, so we get to represent Hawaii at, at the Startup World um, pitch contest in, in the in the Valley mm-hmm. um, for Farmly. And some of them asked me, and they were like, "Oh, you know, um, you know, are you going to be stationed in Hawaii?" And I was like, "I'm not opposed to, to bringing the co- the corporate headquarters back to Hawaii if I get funded in Hawaii." Okay. So that's a challenge out there to everybody listening, uh, <laughs> and we would be more than happy to do so. Um, but you know, we are, you know, the companies are being built within the program. They're they're companies that are they're phased for gro- for global, um, for mm-hmm. for global scale. So. You know, we're we're focusing on the national market. So, of course, I have to have um, a couple of sales reps on the mainland mm-hmm. getting getting customers and vendors on board. Um, but, yeah, like I said, we're not opposed to having it based in, in Hawaii just for right now, just because it's just me and, and, and my two team members. You know, we have to be where we have access to the most amount of, of possible customers, vendors and investors and VCs of right now. That's mm-hmm. California. And Dave, I, I imagine if I can jump oh, in. Sure. Um, sorry, I. I agree with Samantha, and I think that's really the key, Bert, is all of these companies have uh, global global market potential. Uh, of course, you, you go for the low-hanging fruit. You go for the markets that you can address mm-hmm. quickly and with the and with least amount of money. But at the same time, you know, investment capital, you can't just look in one geographic location. You've got to look everywhere. And the capstone of the program, for example, we took the team's the Silicon Valley, where they met investors of all different types in Silicon Valley. They networked. They, you know, started developing relationships with investors. And I think unlike the old days where if a Silicon Valley investor put money into you and said, you know, you've got to move your uh, business to within five miles of my office, those days are gone. You know, Mm -hmm. this is a a global marketplace. These web-based businesses can virtually be anywhere. So, why not in startup paradise? Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Bill, because I was kind of wondering about that sort of mentality of uh, having to go to where the VC is located. So, so Dave, I mean, what's your thought? I mean, are you going to be spending time here? Are you going to try to look elsewhere? To, well, to you know, I lived in Silicon Valley for close to six years, and I moved back. Um, I'm not opposed to moving back, but I, I like to stay here. My family's here. But the reality is, if I think about our investment so far and the committed investment, I got one out of Hong Kong two out of Honolulu, and two out of um, Silicon Valley. Um, we did three demo days or pitches. I got commitments on each of those days. One was in Honolulu, but two were out of Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I don't know. We'll see. You know, mm-hmm. Like Bill said, we got to step up and see what, what we can get out of Hawaii. But we're getting tugged and pulled already to go to Silicon Valley. People like our idea. But they, the ones we've talked to at least said, well, we want you here. Now, can you be there part time and be here full time? We'll see, you know. But um, over the next few months, we'll figure out how it's going to work. And I would imagine, you know, for Tocho, certainly I can see as well as for Farmly, um, it's a model that's uh, that that is does have global reach. I can see the same way some startups like Uber are disrupting transportation in some cities, that the same thing could happen with Toe Choice, that uh, you find the right partners, you find the right place to start where it can uh, really take off. Uh, uh, there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, I mean, we think we can run this business out of Hawaii, so we're, we're going to try. We like to do things that people say you can't do. 
Um, the plan seems to be unfolding that way, but we'll just have to see over the next few months. You know, Bill, I just wanted to ask you, uh, you said the you know people here, the venture, you want to get the venture capital uh, community to really kind of step up. Are there any th- thoughts in your mind as to how you might go about doing that? Well, you know, the, the state has put um, a lot of money, a relatively you know, large amount of money into this accelerator process. And uh, yet that was all matched one for one by local um, investors like Hank Rogers. Right. So w- we know the money is there. Uh, the s- state has sort of um, greased the skids, if you will. But now, um, now it's time for the other institutions to, to step up. You know, we have uh, the makings of a health care venture fund, which um, Queens and Hawaii Pacific Health committed funds to. Uh, and so, you know, we know it's possible. We know that there's money out there. Uh, but it's, it's like everything, it, it takes a while to mature and develop. But I, I wouldn't discourage these entrepreneurs from looking in every nook and cranny for their, their funding. Uh, they will find it because we've... Uh, I think succeeded in creating and helping them, you know, be as good as any entrepreneur from Silicon Valley or, you know, uh, Route 128 or Austin or any other place in the United States. So we know it can be done, and we're going to help them every step of the way. Well, thanks, Bill, for uh, for joining us. My pleasure. Always happy to be part of Bite Marks. Oh, always glad to have you on the show. Thanks for uh, sharing your voice. And uh, so, Samantha, you, you're you're actually kind of um, um, Back for a little while, right? I mean, you were gone for after the after the graduation, and then you know, came back. Uh, is there something going on that brought you back? And what's your on your plan? I always have something going on. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have more meetings scheduled now than than what was during the program. Um, but it's great to finally have a product that. Um, you know, we can demo. We have we have people already using the system. Transactions already processing, so I can actually demo it to 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 people that I had meetings with today and a couple set up tomorrow. Um, and so, yes, I am I am openly setting up meetings in in Hawaii. Where can uh, we find out more about the Farmly? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I just learned Twitter six months ago, so okay, I am addicted by now. Where I'm at Farmly, and you can also sign up on our landing pages at www.farmly.com, and you can get updates as to development, um, software development updates, like what what conferences we're attending, uh, where we'll be speaking at. I'm following you, and that's Farmly with a PH. And uh, Dave, hey. where can folks learn more about Toe Choice and maybe participating in the network? ToeChoice.com, and if uh, Facebook gets their hashtag act together, hashtag <laughs> ToeChoice on Facebook. And you're on Twitter too, right? ToeChoice. Yes. Fantastic. Sounds terrific. So we want to, we'll follow you guys. And so Samantha Godfrey is the CEO and co-founder of Farmly, and Dave Kozuki is the co-founder of ToeChoice. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, guys, so thank much. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn about the science experiments accompanying the Hokulea on its worldwide voyage. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. And of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And please follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called The Pomegranates and a song called Tesseract. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.